So, why are you coming in today? I feel insecure. About what? About what I've been doing since the 60s. What do you mean? What have you been doing? Well, many years ago, I was swept up in a swirl of emotion. Everything was changing so fast, and I just felt a desperate need to keep up, to fit in with the times. That doesn't sound so bad. Why are you insecure about it? I don't know. Because it didn't work. I gave up so much. The way I looked, the way I talked, the way I sang even. But it was never enough. I could never change enough to make people happy. Why did you feel the need to change? Because I wanted more people to hear and respond to my message. And now? I feel like I'm not sure where to go from here. Well, listen, don't despair. The good news is you can learn from every experience. I think it's time to remember where you came from so you will know where to go next. I recommend that you exercise some tradition and don't be afraid to bring out some architecture from your time-tested wardrobe. Let people see the beauty of your liturgy, your art, your music, and be confident in who you are and who you've always been. You need to let beauty work for you once again to transform you and everyone you come in contact with. Before you know it, you'll be like St. Augustine saying, Late have I loved thee, O beauty ever ancient, ever new. Welcome to the Beauty Ever New Podcast. The voice you just heard was my wife, Colleen Morales. We spared no expense. Thanks, honey. All right, Chris, take it away. Welcome, listeners, to the Beauty Ever New podcast. I am Christopher Duffel. I'm Rafael Morales. And we are here to talk about beauty and Catholic architecture. Indeed. Let's set the... Let's give you an idea of the setting here. So we are in my study in a round table with some artwork by Tricia Dugat. Mm, a fellow Houstonian. A fellow Houstonian yeah. and artist, graphic artist. And there's a beautiful, um, what would you call it? An illustration of a heart mm. with the quote from St. Augustine, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. There's a beautiful modern rendition of a votive candle of St. Joseph. And no podcast studio would be complete without a skull to remind us of our death. <laughs> Memento mori. Yeah. All right. That's so great. You forgot to mention the, the other oh, thing yes. ornamenting our table, which is the uh, Bunabane uh, single malt scotch whiskey from uh, Bottled in Scotland. That's right. Sponsorships available. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So today we're going to be talking about architecture and specifically the idea that architecture is sick and is in need of a diagnosis and a mm. treatment. Mm. What do you think of that statement? Well, I, um, I think it's no secret that the majority of Catholic architecture that's been produced in uh, the last generation Everyone, top to bottom, you know, kids to, you know, adults, if you are aware of 
the architecture is a thing, you have a feeling something's missing and that, that there's something not quite right. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, you can phrase it however you want. Some people who are very sophisticated can put really precise terms to it, but um, it's commonly traced back to the late 60s, Second Vatican Council, a yeah. lot of upheaval happening in the church and in the world at large. You know, May of 68, like all of society was sort of undergoing a, a pretty radical change, not just the church. So it's important to know that a lot of what was happening in the church was happening with everyone else too. That's right. right? And, and to architecture at large. Right. To architecture at large, yeah. to like, you know, international military, like geopolitical, like national cultural things. Like mm-hmm. It was everywhere. So it wasn't just the church. And it's important that we recognize that that was in the context of yes. lots and lots of other right. change happening. Um, and uh, Take heart in knowing that not only Catholic buildings are ugly. Yeah. There's a lot of other ugly buildings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so you said that um, that architecture is sick. I'd I'd like to propose to to narrow the point of investigation. This this episode also for for listeners is a bit of a departure. Normally it's us two exchanging questions about a topic, um, but we decided tonight for for uh, Rafa to begin with this proposition, and we're going to kind of try to talk about um, beginning from a a uh, an outsider's view, like not an architect, not a designer, not a theologian, church historian, just like an average yeah. Catholic. Right. Um, this sense that everyone has that there's a lot of our architecture that could be a lot better. Yeah. Art architecture. And in some ways, like the liturgy itself, um, which is the art and architecture's outgrowth of that liturgical celebration. Yeah. Um, has, has something to be regained, let's say mm-hmm. something to be restored. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're beginning with this like point of inquiry where you said, yes, architecture's sick. So I'm going to, I'm going to say, let's, let's narrow the focus a little bit to, Catholic Church architecture okay. has has an illness. I think yes. that's that's a fair point of right. entry. I think it is. I, I do want to mention, just to give that context that you were talking about earlier, I think people have heard of the word or used the word modern. Mm-hmm. And when people, especially in architecture circles, when you say modern, it's, it's a very narrow definition. And yeah. that is architecture that came around early 20th century, that was born out of what is called the machine age aesthetic. So industrial revolution gives birth to this, to this notion that our architecture should be reflective of the machine age Mm -hmm. and the industrial revolution. And what that translated into was buildings that were very sparse in decoration that were very factory like Mm -hmm. again. I mean, it was all emulating, you know, all of the factory machinery, automobiles, mm. the ocean liners that were being made at the time. So that's, in a nutshell, modernism. Yeah, there's a sense that around, you know, when was when the elevator was invented in like the 1880s, 1890s, mm-hmm. like the, you know, air conditioning around the same time for purposes of making printing more efficient, yeah. remove the, you know, the um, moisture from a space, you can cool it better. Yeah. There are all these inventions that are happening um, that really revolutionized the building, right? The elevator yes. and the air conditioner totally changed right. that. And then you have the aesthetic combination of um, the the machine age, the industrial revolution, that people felt, like you said, that the aesthetic component of architecture needed to parallel, um, ought to parallel, like it was its duty in some way to, right. to, um, 
to be emblematic of the spirit of the time, which yes. was the machine. The machine enabled things that weren't before possible. Yes. Right. This is another like context thing. Yeah. And, and the idea was that automation and, and the industrial revolution brought this efficiency into our lives that was making our lives a lot better. Mm -hmm. Science and technology was doing things that, you know, were just improving humanity's lives across the board. So architecture needed to reflect that, needed to, to champion that, and that its expression was going to mimic everything that the machine age was doing. That came with a rejection of tradition in the past. Because, in, you know, again, if you're, you're designing and building these things that have never been seen before, an automobile, you know, airplanes, um, ocean liners, all these things were new inventions that were coming out of this, this new age. And... The thought was that in order to truly free yourself to come up with a new architecture, there was this famous book by Le Corbusier, uh, the French architect, towards a new architecture where he outlines how we can learn from tradition, but what you're really learning is that you need to leave it behind. <laughs> and that you're going to come up with what he termed, for example, his term for a house was a machine for living in. Which, of course, now we hear that and it kind of sounds awful. It feels like you're going to live in a washing machine or something. But at the time, it was incredibly exciting. There was this concept that, you know, you didn't have to have just punched openings in a wall anymore. That a window could be an entire wall. That you could have a completely new way of expressing a house. That you had to incorporate a garage to park your automobile in. So there was this great excitement around what was seen as a freeing of architecture and of expression. And of course, that everyone ran with it pretty hard. And what you ended up with, and again, here I'm just trying to give some context. Mm -hmm. I think what you ran into is a proliferation of really banal buildings. A lot yeah. of really boring, really oppressive structures that have little relationship to the human person because by design they were trying to relate to the machine not the human person yeah well so i'm, I'm going to back up just a moment on that um there there's this idea that when the turn of the century happened and like modernism named as such began that everyone went along with the time there was there was actually a, a good deal of debate about this and there was this uh group that um uh, the 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 workbund the, the the german like workers union mm. had this big debate about should you use the machine or should you not okay and there was a big group of people there was a contingent that argued that whenever you use the machine it devalued the work and there was another contingent that said like we need to embody the machine aesthetic because this is the future and this is the way we're going to export like german culture and we're going to be able to do this so there was like a really intense debate right then just like there is now and it, it wasn't really a wholesale um sort of thing and um, there's this really important thinker at the time, Walter Benjamin. We can put some notes in the, the show notes about that. But mm -hmm. Walter Benjamin was um, born in 1928. So he was a, a, a little bit after the turn of the century. But he was a, a German-Jewish philosopher, cultural critic, essayist, like one of these polymaths who's a bit like um, uh, some of our other guests. I don't know the episode order that this will be published. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but he was this really interesting guy that uh, wrote this uh, piece called The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, which we'll <laughs> also put links to, um, which basically was an essay 
that proposed that the the aura of of work of work of art is yeah. devalued by mechanical reproduction. Mm-hmm. So specifically about a work of art, and and at that time this had like the currency. If you imagine like a work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, you could say a work of art in the age of artificial intelligence. Right. Like what does AI do? An AI produced or manufactured or in some way like co-created with a human, mm-hmm. what does that do for the art? And you can look on Wired or anywhere and you see these articles yeah. about how it's the future, like forget it, forget people. And some people say, it's all that we should be doing. And some people who say, well, let's use it with, and there was a lot of the same in principle, I think, I'm not very familiar with all the AI debates right now, but um, it's the same sort of thing where there are two camps, Right. and it's not always a dichotomy, but let's just say it is for the sake of the podcast. Um, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction was this canonical piece where um, it talks about the influence of like architecture uh, history and art history and cultural studies and media theory and how all of these things about how like the art you produce and the architecture you produce and the way that the world consumes it mm-hmm. um, is something that like we really need to be cognizant of yeah. and that like there was a machine camp and there was like a, like an arts and crafts camp sure. and there was a really intense fight back then too. But isn't it safe to say that they lost? Um, Modernism won wholeheartedly. And yeah, I mean, like, let's rephrase that to say, isn't it safe to say the anti AI camp lost? And you could say they may not have lost if there's like six people in a farm in like rural Ohio. Yeah, I mean, but you, you can say that I, there, I will can, be, there will be more of the mechanical reproduction. Yes, well, you can argue that they're having a resurgence right now, mm-hmm. that uh, we have now seen the results of modernism and the machine age aesthetic Mm. and what we're seeing is that our cities are awful to live in Mm -hmm. our buildings are boring at best Mm. and harmful at worst and that we know that we need to do something else so i I can you can say that their ideas didn't go away but for a for a time i think especially in the west it seems like modernism and capitalism fit really well together Mm -hmm. in the sense that you know, modernism uh, made buildings okay if you wanted to make it as cheap as possible. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. before, even a warehouse would have some sort of dignity, some sort of embellishment because it was going to be part of a social fabric. Mm-hmm. I think modernism made it okay to build the metal building warehouse. Sure. There's the, uh, what is it? The, let me look it up. The Gropius warehouse. Right. And so... You know, just to kind of wrap up this context piece, that is the context in which, you know, the 60s kind of Second Vatican Council and and people that kind of were coalescing around this same kind of modernist spirit then manifested itself even in church architecture. Um, and I think what we have now seen decades later is that modernism is in almost every way diametrically opposed to the Catholic idea of what it means to be human and of our faith being an incarnational reality and that it needs to be expressed in a very different way. So the, the canonical sort of touchstone, let's say, of, of modernism for people who haven't taken architecture history, didn't go to architecture school, um, this is a pretty good summary, um, which is uh, Le Corbusier's, um, there's a guy, Charles Edward Jeanneret, who went by the, the moniker Le Corbusier. 
which is like his one name, like Prince. There's only one name for him. Um, he's this guy who um, was a Swiss, Swiss French architect, um, you know, designer, painter, urban planner. He did a bunch of other things, but he was mainly known for his architecture. He um, he wrote this book called The Five Points of Architecture, and um, he wrote these points, and I think they're really helpful because of the way they make distinguish and distinguish. Let me back up. The way they distinguish um, between the person and the building, mm-hmm. um, the relationship between the two. Yeah. Um, so the, there are five points, and he basically says that these five points are what you should strive towards and what make modern architecture what it is and like how we can sort of take control over the world. You'll notice in this these five points that it's all about control and it's all about you um, like objectifying the building and nature and yourself yeah. and removing it from a kind of synthesis, right? The right. Catholic view of nature and of the human person and of the liturgy yeah. is that it's all about uniting, right? The center of our faith right. is a thing called communion. It's about being one with one another and being right. one with God. Yeah. So there, there's this act of reunification that is the Catholic thing, bringing mm-hmm. things back together. Like Christ came so that we could be reunited with the in, Father. Including man and nature. Right. Man and right. nature, us and God. Everything mm-hmm. is coming in Jesus. There's right. a center of gravity and we're all sort of coming back into one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But the five points in some way are a removal of that. And right. um, I'm going to sound very like... <laughs> uh, I'm going to just go right into it. So the, the five points are uh, P-L-O-T, um, free facade, ribbon window, roof gardens, and um, uh, free plan. Right. So I'm going to go back to this really quickly. Um, the P-L-O-T is uh, basically that you should have a, a grid of reinforced concrete columns, which free the structural loads of, of before. You used to have a big masonry wall. Yeah. You were beholden in some way to this big thing. And if you have these columns... It sort of says everything's fair game, right? Right. It opens up the plan, and then you have uh, the free plan, which is the in the absence of these supporting walls, the house is unrestrained from internal use. You can right. organize it however you want. Yes. Again, I can do whatever I want. I'm unrestrained from right. um, these things. Uh, the free design of the facade. So if you separate the interior of the building from the exterior, um, from its structural function, then this sets the facade free from structural constraints. So again, yeah. a setting free, interior and exterior, unrelated anymore. They can be whatever they want. So when you see a stucco wall somewhere with some random window, um, actually stucco is not all that helpful because it's a solid material, but um, the, the the free facade is I can do whatever I want. Again, you could summarize all of these with whatever I want. I got yes. it. I'm, I'm in control now. Ribbon window. The, there is no need for to have a vertical uh, cadence of columns, buttresses, whatever you're going to have. The, the window can go all the way around. Right. Right. Again, I'm in total control. Uh, roof gardens, the ultimate like man conquering world. I'm going to take that tree and put it on the roof. Right. Like, I will tell nature where it needs to I'm go. I'm totally in control of nature. Uh, the roof can serve uh, a domestic purpose. I mean, it's put in these, in these terms. It can serve a domestic purpose and provide essential protection um, in the concrete roof. I'm sort of reading from the Wikipedia entry here, but each of these things, the, the PLOT, the, the free plan, the, um, the free facade, the ribbon window, and the roof gardens, they're all a kind of claiming control. And I don't want to say that's bad for all buildings, but for churches that have a kind of, I'd say they have like the clearest ontology of any other building there is, um, they are harmful. Right. But what's wrong with being free? I mean, what's wrong with being able to be as creative as you want to be? Uh, it's a good question. What is, what is freedom? 
What is freedom? Is is freedom anything you can to, to are you free if you can do anything you want to do? No. <laughs> I mean it's it's a good question. What's wrong with being free on the surface? That's right. Nothing yeah. because freedom is a good. But what is freedom? Like it, it sort of beckons the question. And I would say that if you can do anything you want at any point in time, what if I want to hurt you and take all of your money right. and burn your house down? Am I free to do that? Right. No, I'm not free to do that because that's not me being free. That's me impinging upon yeah. who you are and your, your liberties. So I'd, I'd say that there is nothing wrong with freedom as such, but freedom insofar as it, um, as it impinges upon someone else's like liberties and good mm-hmm. is, um, I mean, it's a very good question. That's why I'm kind of dwelling on it a little bit um, is something that, that matters. And I think for other building types, and this is something that's really important to note. There are other building types where uh, the adoption of modernism as an aesthetic, as an organizing principle, as like, you know, something that sort of forms the institution is a good thing. Modernist. Well, it's a good thing insofar as it reflects like, for example, if you're building a, labora- a laboratory, mm-hmm. then a modern building might very well suit your purposes and, yes. and, and be a, a, good, mm-hmm. a good use of it. Mm-hmm. Or certain museums, you know, th- yes, there are yeah. certain building types in which the modern aesthetic is a good fit. Yeah, I generally prefer houses that you would call modern. And, sure. And, yeah. but, but when you talk about, like, what the, the sort of telos of of a house. Have you ever lived in a modern house? Um, have I lived in a modern house? I think I've vacationed somewhere where we're like VRBO'd in a modern house before. The reason, I, the reason I ask but, is because I too, you know, because we go to school and we're, I mean, I hate to, to say it, but we're indoctrinated to like modernism. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, with rare exception, just for listeners to know, there are a few schools in the United States that like tout themselves as traditional schools of architecture. Two Most, schools. But yeah. Like, yeah, like two. Notre Dame and Miami. Yeah. But anyways, in Virginia, there's like one in traditional. I don't know. Maybe there's Virginia. some there's some programs of historic preservation, which by default, because you're preserving history in there, right. more traditional. Yeah. Um, most schools have uh, a preponderance of faculty, if not 100 percent, that um, it's just like, you know, sort of wash it over and say, yeah, are more modern, and less traditional. The only reason I ask, you know, to, to just kind of mm-hmm. play devil's advocate. But so I, too, you, you know, I, too, grow up going to. Uh, or wanting to live in a modern house. Mm-hmm. But I've never lived in a modern house. I just wonder if like, if I actually lived in a truly modern house, would I actually like it? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I know it, I like looking at magazines of modern houses. So I, I, I think it's hard to say just like <laughs> a modern house because yeah. there's a certain type of modernism that I would not want to live in. I can quickly imagine that. And I can also imagine a modern house that I would like to live in. So it's sort of like saying, uh, do you want a, a, a modern friend? What? kind of modern friend like i can imagine a jerk or i can imagine an awesome person who like sure. likes my scotch and likes my board games and is interesting and is well read yeah. and whatever yeah i mean i guess i would i would keeping it in in the conversation that we're having mm-hmm. modern house like if someone described the house as a machine for living in mm-hmm. so in other words high modernism very keep in keeping with the ideals of a corbusier mm-hmm. i probably wouldn't want to live in a house there like there are if I imagine me raising my three kids and living in a Corbusier house, probably not many of them I'd want to do that in. Right. Or that my wife would want yeah. to live in. Um, so, but the, but the point is well taken. 
So this is what you can say for to keep our, our sick metaphor mm-hmm. <laughs> infected Catholic architecture mm-hmm. in a very profound way. And what resulted was what I would call just gen- a generation of really mediocre churches mm-hmm. at best, like yeah. mediocre at best churches that were just fell so short of what a church should be, of what a church should express and communicate to someone walking into it. Mm -hmm. And so now we find ourselves with that legacy looking towards the future. So if we say that the diagnosis of of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and maybe even into the 90s is just mediocrity and an architecture that you could even say is opposed to what the church should be. So what's the treatment? It's sort of like asking how you help modern man with his sickness. And what I mean by that is um, I'm, I'm just sort of, you know, thinking in my, in my mind that the building itself and, and man are in some way both sick, right? Man in, in the kind of general sense and buildings in the general mm-hmm. sense, architecture mm-hmm. buildings. And the, the problem is that we've lost sight of the goal, right? Yeah. In the 60s and the 70s, it was, uh, there was this desire to um, make the liturgy more uh, comprehensive. Not, um, comprehendable. Comprehendable. Yeah, right. not comprehensive. Comprehendable. And what that meant was not to make the mysteries themselves more known in some way. It, um, what a lot of people feel is that it, brought the mass closer towards the people instead of bringing the people up into the mysteries of the mass. That's a good way to put it. And, yeah. um, and in some way that movement is like, God does that. He comes to us, right? He condescends. He became a baby. Right. And, you know, in like the shadow of a, a like a murderous king. Yeah. And like, you know, a cave somewhere. Right. So the condescension is not something that's foreign to God, but, um, there's a sense that the condescension that happened since Second Vatican Council is one that mostly left the things that brought, uh, you know, sort of value to the liturgy. Where there's something about the otherness of faith in in many ways yeah. that makes it helpful. Yeah, I, I think the distinction that we might want to draw here is just to say that when God became man, so He came to us, He didn't in any way water down the message mm. or make the significance of what happened any less deep. In other words, you know, him coming and becoming man did not make him any less God. Mm. And I think you could potentially argue that the liturgical changes that took place after Vatican II, let's mm-hmm. just put it that way. Mm-hmm. What, what ended up happening is in, un, in the spirit of making it more comprehensible, mm-hmm. the liturgy, we lost depth and we lost mystery and we lost some of the substance of what the mass was. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that that's the difference. So mm-hmm. in a way, like if, if you can describe what the church is trying to do in its mission mm-hmm. during the entirety of its existence, mm-hmm. it is taking the, the event of God becoming man and trying to make sense of it and then mm-hmm. trying to tell people about it. Yeah. yeah but yeah. in the process, trying to not in any way water it down. And it's a difficult thing. Oh, I mean, oh it's totally. Not, a, not an easy yeah. task. But I think that maybe we, we 
in in this spirit of trying to make it more comprehensible, we ended up watering it down more than we should. Yeah, no, I think that that I agree with the all all the sentiment behind that. The the thing that I mean, I haven't studied exhaustively um, the events that have happened in the last sixty years. Sure, right, yeah. but and there's a lot to unravel. I mean, it is it's not a it's not a single event. It, it's right. A, a variety of different things that happened yeah and every place in the world was slightly different so yeah. you know it's it's hard to just say yeah. that one thing happened i mean it's it's important for listeners to know that our our expertise is is in design is in architecture we've both right. been through many many years of architecture school and we were professionally in the field we design churches we work for an office and we spend all of our time designing churches so we we mm-hmm. do this professionally mm-hmm. and personally and as our in our families we're, we're like lifelong Catholics, so we have a kind of um, professional interest that begins in some way from the design field and is buttressed by um, personal study and things like that. So mm-hmm. just so people are aware of where we're coming from and all this. Um, so the architecture history, I am I am more familiar with just because of the study, but sure. I think that what, the, what I sense is that the things that were perceived as being encumbrances to the laity were not taken and renewed, but were just tossed out. Right. Like Latin is gone. Gregorian chant is all but gone. Mm-hmm. And all the smells and bells and, you know, yeah. you still sit, stand kneel all the time. But there's there's a lot in um, the, the old mass that in some way was considered uh, what made the mass impenetrable. And it was that veil of mystery that in some way um, invited you into the mystery right. that is now gone. Right. And, you know, felt banners and things like that. Like, right. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. The pendulum swung quite far the other way. Right. So I'd, I'd say the, the sense right now among the, the majority of the faithful is that we want this, we want incense, we want traditional feeling churches because, because of the mystery, not because of traditional styles being good, but because there's something about the mysterious and the sacred that is important to revive. Yeah. And all of those sorts of things that that are easily defined as like, oh, you're just like a super traditional person. Like you just right. want the old stuff. Like, no, I want the revival of the mystery and the entering into like the mystery of Christ to be right. made more manifest. Yeah. That often is best summarized in more traditional forms and like liturgies and things like that. Sure. But, um, that's that's the, the motion I'd say right now. Right. What do you think of the statement that what happened in the last... And I would say this society-wide, not just in the church. We almost forgot how to be human. You know, it's like we were so fixated on a certain part of our humanity hmm. that we began to kind of let fall by the wayside a really important part of what it means to be human. And let me explain that a little bit. Sure. So for the longest time, humans had a very direct connection to nature. Mm-hmm. And you just told us in very explicit terms how architects like Le Corbusier had the agenda that we needed to be freed from nature, that we needed to be in control of nature and that we would create our own environment. Mm. Well, that's all well and good, but it came at a cost. Mm. And that cost is the fact that if we truly believe that God created the world and that it was good, as the Bible tells us, Mm then there is something for us to gain in having a connection with that and that right. we were intended to be connected with nature and with just the crea- creation at large. Right, right. And furthermore, 
because of the incarnation, that God not only redeemed man, but that he redeemed creation itself. And if that's true, then again, part of our salvation, part of our understanding of who God is, will come through nature. Mm -hmm. And that what happened through the project of modernism and everything that's been going on, we convinced ourselves that we didn't need nature anymore, that we could create our own environments that would be perfectly sterile and perfectly controlled. And now we've gotten to the point that we don't even think the physical world is good enough for us because now we're creating all these digital worlds. Mm. So we're only further abstracting ourselves from the created world that God gave us. Yeah. And I think what may be happening is people realizing that we are missing that part of our humanity. Yeah. We are missing our connection to creation as an agent to see God and as an agent of, of just revelation. Yeah. You know? And I think that that is something that the medieval people, and I would say the church you know, has had that sense throughout all of its history, but especially in the Middle Ages, people had a keen awareness that all of creation was a way that well, all of creation revealed God in some some way mm -hmm. and that the architecture that they produced was almost an extension of nature, you know, that it yeah. was still kind of inspired by and almost an outgrowth of this idea that all of creation is redeemed. Yeah, no, I, I think there's um, there's a lot there. And what yeah. you just said, <laughs> your little expository as you step off the, the yeah, the let stool. me let me get down. Yeah, that. no, no, I, I, I uh, <laughs> a lot of that I, I have a lot of sympathies with. I think it's important to, as, as you're speaking, I'm thinking that it's important to note that a lot of the modernist ideas are are properly seen in um, in the lineage of or as an outgrowth of the Enlightenment. And there's a lot about the Enlightenment that's really good and Absolutely. really valuable that I want yes. to hold up as like very good and say yes. Um, yes. But there's some of it that is not. So the um, another distinction to be made is that modernism as a as a, a theological ideology is distinct from modernism as an architectural movement. And there's a lot of parallels to them. Obviously, they share the sure. same name. Yes. There's a lot of um, similar ambitions between the new the two projects yes so if we say modernism we're like trying our best to distinguish between if we mean like modernism as a theological thing which is antithetical to like the project of the church and like right. the mission of the gospel um but um yeah i think a lot of the reunification of nature with with our lives and our experiences mm -hmm. um is Something that can't be understated. Um, was let's, there a question in what you said that I needed no, to respond really. to? No, not really. No. Well, let's put some a little bit of shoe leather on this, okay. as, as uh, yeah. some people would say. Um, so for a long time, the church has had an awareness that the cosmos or nature itself mm -hmm. points to Christ, like I, like I said, especially yeah. in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Yeah. So a simple way that architecture did this was mm -hmm. churches faced east, mm -hmm. Because East was always associated with the rising sun and therefore the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, occasionally these days you can go to a church that faces East. And if mm -hmm. you go to the morning mass and there's a stained glass window behind the altar, you can see why they did this. Mm -hmm. Because you go there and it's like you just get a very intuitive sense of why you're there. Mm -hmm. And the sun is playing a you know, a, an important role 
in the telling of the story right. of the mass and of the gospel. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's like a small the resurrection, example. the rising of the new sun. But, yeah. Right. So now take, take that kind of thinking mm-hmm. and just apply it all over the church. And yeah. that's what the middle ages. And that's what a lot of the history of the church did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that what we saw in the, in the, in the you know, 60s, 70s, 80s mm-hmm. is that we just did away with that. Mm-hmm. We didn't pay attention to yeah. churches facing East or that that wasn't even important. Yeah. Um, I mean, because... I, I think even before that, though, if you back up the the five points that I mentioned, mm-hmm. all of those were in some way about removing a kind of telos from the building. Yes. Right? The columns, talk about columns for a moment. Columns have like a capital, they have the shaft, and they have the base. Yeah. And the bottom is, is a little squatty, right? Right. It's like you're sitting on something and the weight is expressed. And yeah. as the shaft, the intasis, um, we should like talk about this in the shows or something. I don't know. It can like post some pictures of it columns start a little bit wider at the base and then kind mm-hmm. of narrow up to the top so yep. they're supposed to be like people mm-hmm. you have a cap the the capital the capitas the head yeah um so there's a kind of um, um reference to a person in the architectural element and that has a kind of meaning it's supposed to convey to the person and you're supposed to be able to see that you're supposed to be able yeah. to read that into a building and there are lots of other um, arrangements in a building you're supposed to be able to read like if there's something that's symmetrical you know mm-hmm. that in the center is the important part we right. just get that. That's just what yeah. symmetry does, right? Right. And we used to read significance into organizations and geometry and like yeah. intuitively read that into things. Right. And part of what the five points do is they remove significance from the location of windows and columns and doors and plants. Yeah. Like there is nothing that organizes it other than some sort of spreadsheet, spreadsheet, spreadsheet driven. Yeah. Um, um, not that they had spreadsheets back then, but there's some there's something outside of um, the the central purpose of the thing right. that dr- organizes and drives it. Yes, and I think as a as a culture we've we don't read into buildings the same way. We see things as Instagram worthy and like oh right. that's cool, yeah. but we don't read significance as clearly as we used to unless you go to a building that it, it takes a lot of effort, I guess, to do. Yeah. I don't want to say we don't read it into it at all, but well, and and so. I think you I think you're right. And going back to something you said earlier, which is the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. which had definitely some very good things. And yeah. and I think the I mean, the Enlightenment was many things, but let's say that one of the overarching themes was we should be able to understand the world we live in. We should be able to understand what we see, and the way that we understand is through the scientific method, through experimentation, mm-hmm. through observing the physical world that we live yeah. in. So what came out of that kind of thinking is the idea that we needed to really understand. That's a good thing. Yep. That made its way into the liturgy and it became especially, I mean, th- this, you know, this started well before the Second Vatican Council, but kind of crescendo there in this idea that the laity needed to understand every single part of the mass and to have it be intelligible and digestible and comprehensible like we were talking about earlier. Is that a good thing? Yes, I think it's a good thing. I think it's good that people know how they're worshiping and, and, and what's going on in the Mass. But at the same time, what was lost, let's go back to, to the Middle Ages, when, when you had, and sometimes you know people say, well, in the Middle Ages, people were illiterate, so you had stained glass windows, so people knew what Bible stories were, uh, were being told or whatever. 
there is some truth to that. People were illiterate. They did learn some things from the stained glass window. However, in the Middle Ages, I think there was more of a sense that it was okay if you didn't understand every single part. It was okay if you actually had a very small understanding because what mattered was that you would go into this church and be surrounded by beauty, by transcendence, mm -hmm. and that that in itself was teaching you about God, that that in itself was like informing you of how God loved you, of how, you know, of how amazing God was, mm -hmm. just the beauty itself. Right. That, yes, you didn't understand like everything the priest was saying and doing and so on, but just being in this ceremony that was so amazing and so beautiful and so transcendent was in itself informing you and teaching you about the nature of God. So what, what I think happened is we kind of thought, we favored the Enlightenment version of it, the I need to understand everything of it, to such an extent that we kind of booted the rest of it out. And mm. I think what's happening now is we're trying to reconcile the two again mm. and say, yes, we want to understand because it's a good thing to understand. Mm. But we also want to learn by just beauty, by being mm. surrounded by beauty, by yeah. transcendence, and in that way, learn about the nature of God. Mm. Yeah, agreed. Which is why we're doing this podcast. Yes. <laughs> that sometimes, you know, like, you, I mean, you've, you've had this experience. You go to church, you hear a beautiful hymn or you you hear a beautiful song mm -hmm. or just the lighting that day was just a particular way and mm -hmm. you just feel loved. You know, yeah. you feel like God's presence and no one needs to tell you anything. Yeah. Or, or you walk into an old church and there's tons of artwork everywhere and mm -hmm. it's all beautiful. And yes, you may not know what every single little thing means. Like mm -hmm. even though there's probably significance and, and meaning to every single piece of it, Mm -hmm. What's important is not that you understand every single piece of the entire church. Mm -hmm. It's that you're just taking in this beauty and through it, seeing the nature of God. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there are times where I, I leave mass and I go home and I'm like, I want to read. Like yeah. I have this, like, you know, the intellectual pursuit burns strongly within me right. and I want to like, you know, tear through books and like put my kids to bed early so I can like, you know, start like devouring some stuff and just like apprehend intellectually the thing that is before me yeah and there are times where i want to sit back and like not lean forward in my seat like sit back in my chair and just have the thing wash over me that's right it's sort of like when you listen to a concert like you when i listen to music i want it to come to me and i, mm -hmm. I let it wash over me and i don't have to grapple with it i don't right. like put it in syllogistic form and try to like like, do I get this? This is yeah, right. It's like, you don't have to understand the notes. It's not a or thing you grasp. Composed. Yeah. It's a thing that like envelops you right. in, in a more gentle way. It's a bit more yeah. receptive. And that's how, um, in some ways, like how I envision like the conscious active participation, like right. that phrase, it's yeah. a thing that it's participatory, but it's, I think in intrinsically, I may be wrong about this, but like instinctively, I think it's intrinsically a receptive thing. Like I'm actively receiving because God is the agent and right. I'm receiving him yeah. in the liturgy. But it's something that like in the same way that a beautiful painting or building or piece of music washes over me and I yeah. don't grapple with it. Right. It just comes to me. That's the same way that like God can come to us in right. a beautiful building. And it's, you know, it's, it sounds sort of wishy washy. Mm -hmm. And and at the same time that I say that and I think, yeah, that's right. I think, 
man, like I don't, I want to like put it in a bit more like, like the Western, like yeah, you want to cut it up and dissect yeah. it. Yeah, Aquinas, <laughs> the the little the little like Aquinas in me is like yeah, like therefore I propose and yeah. want to like <laughs> yeah, but um, but that's okay and that's part of the the let let the inner Augustine come out. The inner Augustine, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O oh Lord. There you yeah. go. The beauty ever new. <laughs> that's um, right. In some way, that's the point of the, the podcast is to talk about um, people write about theology and they write about beauty and they write in some ways too about architecture and they say, here's what it should be. It should be beautiful. And part of what the what we're doing here, and we hope that you, um, dear listener, enjoy and, and find helpful is following along this conversation and come conversing with us on uh, on the website on social media um, about ways that um, beautiful experiences of beauty and art and architecture affect you and how we can go about moving from these suggestions from Pope Saint John Paul II and Pope Benedict mm-hmm. and like various um, you know, great thinkers throughout history have called us to engage with with beauty. Yeah. Um, uh, what does that mean? How do we do it? How do we go about actually putting teeth to those those words and those yeah. sentiments and those hopes? Um, that's what we're doing. We hope you'll continue to join us along the way. And um, thanks for listening. Yes, thank you, Chris. This yeah. is good. Awesome. Thanks for listening. The best way to enjoy the podcast is to pull up the accompanying blog post for the episode at beautyevernew.com. There you will find show notes, guest information, helpful visual aids, and more. To continue the conversation, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and let us know how you're experiencing beauty in your churches and communities.